Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Yeah, I hope you are already starting to get into the Christmas spirit, into that uh, flow of just knowing what this season is all about. And as you are, we want to celebrate God's truth together this morning by turning to Revelation chapter 2 and continuing on in our teaching series. Revelation. And as we journey through this book, in the beginning of this book, uh, we're hearing from Jesus and we're gaining perspective, not only about what the early churches uh, needed to know about Jesus and not only knowing what they were going through, but we're starting to figure out more and more, I hope, as we go through this teaching of who Jesus is and what he should mean to us and what we should see in him and what we're looking for in Jesus. And so as we're rolling through these uh, early chapters of the book of Revelation, we start to think about him more and more fully. And as we enter the Christmas season, we think about Jesus coming to earth for the first time. But as we're reading through Revelation, the turning pages of this book of the Bible get us in that motion where we're starting to think about Jesus coming to earth for the second time. That he is going to return. And just as the passage we read this morning was uh, lit the Advent candle, that he will return and it will be a time of peace on the earth. It'll be a time that his reign lasts forever. Uh, And so in the ending chapters of the book of Revelation, Jesus is teaching his church about who he is and what to expect when he comes. And as he comes in the fullness of his glory, he wants his church to know how to receive him. And so he spends a great amount of time writing letters to the churches And saying, I want you to know who I am and I want you to know how to receive me when I come. That when I come back for you, that there are some things that I expect. And so Jesus is writing these letters. It looks a lot like a groom writing letters to his bride before a wedding. Uh, This week we lost a great man in our culture. George H.W. Bush passed away on Friday. And as I was looking at some videos and some different things about his life, one of the things that struck me so much was the love relationship that he and Barbara Bush shared with one another. And if you watched any of the videos that have been on Facebook or social media or whatever, one of the things that was compelling to me was how many letters they wrote to one another during their life in marriage, especially when he was serving in the armed forces overseas. And he would write letters back and forth to his dearest Barbara, his sweetest Barbara, right? And he was writing these letters to let her know his love for her and who he was. And she was writing back to him and this correspondence that was going on. Jesus, in the same way, is a loving husband who's writing to his bride, the church. And he's letting us know who he is, what he's about, and what he desires for us in life. And so when we think about that, I do um, quite a bit of premarital counseling. And uh, when I sit down with young couples who are getting ready to go into marriage, or even older couples who are getting ready to go into marriage, some of the things that we talk through and talk about are, what do you need to do to build a, a foundation for marriage that's going to last for a lifetime together? And so while so many people may approach marriage and they're, they're preparing for the wedding by going, well, I've got I've to fit in the dress. It's got to look good. I've got to get the right stuff. I've got to get all these details lined up. Uh, I've got to get the beach body ready, right? So I'm going to go to the gym and work out. And, and I've got all these things that I'm doing to prepare for the marriage. Well, you're really preparing for an event in doing those things. But what you do in premarital counseling is you build a foundation, And you start to work through things that are going to help you strive to live in relationship with one another where two people become one. 
See, I've never done premarital counseling with anyone, regardless of how, uh, how intelligent they are, how well-balanced they are, how sophisticated they are, uh, how mature they are. I've never done premarital counseling with anyone that had no problems to work through in that period of time leading up to marriage. Maybe you were the exception. I don't know what your situation was. Maybe you were the perfect couple. You didn't have anything to work on. But primarily when I sit down with couples and we work through things, we go, man, what are the issues that we need to identify that are still causing stresses in your relationship so we can work on those things to build a foundation for you to live your life in union together that will work and will last forever? And one of the biggest things for couples to get around is the problem of selfishness. And that makes sense, right? You live for the first 20, 21, 22, 25, 30 years of your life, whatever age you were when you got married, and life is pretty much about you. Where am I going to eat? What am I going to do? Who do I want to hang out with? What's my schedule going to be? What am, I, you know, what am I thinking about for me? And then all of a sudden, you get brought into this marriage relationship, this dating relationship where there's proposal and there's engagement and there's a marriage that's pending, and all of a sudden, you start to go, wait, it's not just about me anymore. I'm joining together with another person, and two become one flesh. And so I've got to deal with the things in my life that are selfish so that I can get to a place of selflessness. And as Jesus is writing to his churches, I think one of the things that he's doing is he's helping them say, listen, as you get ready for this wedding that's coming where I'm going to be united with you for eternity and I'm going to come together as a groom and you're going to be my bride, I need you to work on some things where there's selfishness involved in your heart. Because when I come, I'm looking for a pure bride. I'm looking for one who wants to be united with me forever, where there's nothing ahead of me because I'm king, I'm God, I'm Lord, and I'm a husband to you. Guys, that's a weird analogy for us, right? We're like the bride, we're the, we're the bride now? Like, how's that work out for us? We'll talk about that later on in the book of Revelation. But Jesus is painting this picture of saying, look, I love you with an unending love, and when I come for you, there are certain things that I desire of you, that you're ready to receive me, as a bride to her husband. And so with that in mind this morning, that gives us a picture of great importance as we get into this book. And so I want to tell you just a few details as we start to look at the city of Thyatira, the church in Thyatira. And before we read this passage, let me just give you some background on this city. It was a small city compared to some of the others that we've been discussing, but it was an important city due to the trade routes that ran through it. Thyatira is, uh, is number four on the map up here uh, in northern Turkey. It's about 40 miles uh, to the east of Pergamos, and so there's a little bit of distance between those two cities. Uh, and so as Thyatira is this city that we're focusing on, it was known for its trade routes, uh, especially it was known for its dealing in purple dye. And they would have this, uh, this dye that they would create fabrics with. And in this day and age, purple was a rare commodity. The color purple was a rare commodity. Those who were royal wore purple. Those who were the higher ups in society wore purple to distinguish themselves from the peasants, right? And so you've got these people who would deal in these purple dyes. When you read in the book of Acts, when Paul travels to the city of Philippi, he meets a woman named Lydia. Lydia is from Thyatira and she's a dealer in purple cloth. And so when she hears of Paul and his ministry, and Paul goes to the river to worship one morning. Uh, he meets Lydia there, and he engages with her in conversation and finds out that she already believes in God and this deity of God, a father that's in heaven, but she doesn't know the story of Jesus. And so he tells her the story of Jesus, and she willingly and gladly accepts Jesus as her Savior. 
And then more than likely, historically, Lydia is the one who carried the message of the gospel of Jesus back to Thyatira and helped begin the first church in the city of Thyatira. And so this engagement that Paul had with Lydia was encouraging to him because she was someone in these trade guilds. In the city of Thyatira, they had these guilds that had developed. Uh, it, so you had the clothing guilds and you had the metal workers guilds and all these different industry kinds of things that people would come along and go, well, we're a city that trades, that deals in these things with linens and with fabrics and with metal works. And so the city was important in the trade routes in this region, in this area. And yet in the middle of all of that, and they not only had these trade routes that were going on, but they also had extravagant worship that was taking place. Uh, it was the center of social and economic wealth for this area. And as a result, they exercised a, a powerful religious influence. So these guilds, these trades, trade guilds had their gods that they worshiped. And each guild might have a different god that they would worship. So the, those who dealt in the purple fabrics may have a certain God, and those who were the metal workers had a certain God, and they all worshiped all these different beings, these different gods. The highest God of the city that they would worship was uh, Apollo, who was the son of Zeus, and who was the sun God, essentially. And so Apollo was the primary God here. The people who worshiped Caesar attributed Caesar to being Apollo reincarnated, that he was the God Apollo. And so this worship of Caesars that were going on and the worship that came through the trade guild, if you wanted to be a part of things in this city, you had to worship and do things the way that the guilds did them. They controlled the economy of the government or of the region. They controlled the worship of the region. If you want to think about it, it might have been similar to, in our day and time, Paris or Milan. Like these cities of extravagant wealth, but there's all these different things that take place with the fashion industry and all of those kinds of things. And to be engaged in this, you had to embrace the culture of the city. And so with those things in mind, the Christians were being pressured to be a part of these trade guilds. If you wanted to work, if you wanted to practice your worship, you had to go through these guilds, these different things that were taking place. Uh, and to be a part of them meant to do what they did. One commentator said that in the trade guilds, if you wanted to go to their places of worship or to be a part of the guilds and their celebrations, they had feasts that would take place. And there were three components, three facets to their feasts. The first was that you would pour out a cup of worship to the God of that guild. So Christians are all in a place where they're going, for me to be a part of this, I have to, to pour out a cup of to a, a God that I don't even believe in, but I'm supposed to do that. Second, you had a fellowship meal that included heavy drinking, people drinking to the point of being drunk. And so Christians are being put in this, this pressure situation of going, if I'm going to be a part, I'm supposed to, to drink excessively. And then what happens when people are drunk? The next thing leads to sexual immorality. Let's practice sexual orgies following these meals that took place. And so in the middle of this culture, the church is supposed to be living for Christ, and yet they're being told, if you want to belong in this culture, you have to do these things and engage in these things, or else you can't be a part. In fact, you might not have a job anymore. You can't participate in our, in our, uh, uh, our economy. You can't be a part of the, uh, the, the fellowships that we have, the meals that we share. And so Jesus knows these things, and he's writing to the church. And so as we face all of this, and we see what they're suffering against socially, financially, and economically, and, uh, and relationally, here's the letter that Jesus writes to the church. So if you look in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, that's where we'll start. And here's what Jesus says to his church. To the angel in the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. 
I know your deeds, your love and your faith and your service and perseverance and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who brings her, who calls herself a prophet. And by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. And to the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule over them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so as Jesus writes this letter to his church, he begins once again by introducing himself. As his custom has been in these letters to the churches, he starts by saying, this is who I am. I want you to know these things about me. Based on where you live and the culture you're in and what you're facing, here's what you need to know about me. And isn't Jesus good to do that for us? That he looks at our specific situations and then through his word, he reveals himself so we know how to live in relationship with him in the middle of our situation. And so Jesus writes to this church and he says, to the angel in the church or the messenger of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is the only place in the book of Revelation where Jesus calls himself the son of God. In other places he's referred to as the son of man. In other places he's referred to as the lamb of God. Uh, He's the lion of Judah. He's all these different names, but this is the only time he refers to himself as the son of God. Why do you think he would do that? Well, remember, this city is founded on a place where they're worshiping Apollo, the son of Zeus, as the God of their city. And so he says, I want you to know who the real God is, and I want you to know who the real son of God is. I'm Jesus, and I am the son of God. There is no other son, there is no other God, I'm it. And so he writes to them, and he says, you can know that the culture you is worshiping all of these other things and Caesar is being worshiped as Apollo reincarnate and he's the son of God but I want you to know that I am the son of God and not only that but he also says I have eyes blazing like fire and I've got feet like burnished bronze and so when we think about that we go what does that mean we remember back to chapter one where he introduced himself and so here's what I would say and if you're taking notes this morning and want to write something down or follow along on our app you can do that but when Jesus says he has eyes like blazing fire he means this he's being metaphorical he's being uh, Uh, speaking in some sense about what his character is like. In other words, he has insight and power to judge. So Jesus says, "I, I don't really have flames of fire in my eyes, but my eyes are such that they burn through all of the things that you try to hide, the masks you wear, the things that we try to put on in front of us that cover our sin. Jesus says, I look through those things and I have a and I have a perfection and I have a glory that sees through sin. And so Jesus reveals himself and says, I'm the one who has insight and I have power to judge. I'm the one who judges the hearts and the motives of mankind. Jesus looks into the inner nature of who we are. We can put on a great outer facade. I don't have any problems. I don't ever deal with sin. I don't have any mess in my life. I'm perfect. And Jesus goes, yeah, that one's an easy one to burn right through. I see right through that. 
And I want you to know that I see and I judge the hearts of men and I have the ability to judge. So his eyes see through our deceptiveness and the masks we wear to cover who we really are. He sees with complete holiness and with absolute purity. And then the feet like burnished bronze symbolizes to the church his power and his authority. In a city where the metal workers guild wielded enormous power, Jesus lets his church know, I have supreme authority and power over them. I can trample on them. My feet are the ones that walk and do the judging. I walk through the middle of your city and I know where the power and authority is. It's with me. It's not with these guilds. You don't have to be concerned about them. You don't have to worry about how they're going to judge you. You don't have to worry about them not letting you have a place in society and in their culture because I'm the one who walks through this city with burnished bronze feet. I'm the one that has power and authority. And so next, Jesus has a word of commendation for the church. In verse 19, he says, I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. And so Jesus loves to see the good deeds springing up from this church. He's excited to see their faith and their perseverance. And he says, look, I know I've been watching you from the time of your conception as a church. Perhaps when Lydia came back to the city of Thyatira and brought the message of the gospel of Jesus with her and this church was born and people began coming into faith in Christ. And he goes, I know what you were like as a, a small little fledgling church and a, a small body of believers. And there wasn't much faith that was there. There wasn't much perseverance that was there. There wasn't much acts of good works and deeds that were there, but now I see how you're persevering, how your faith is growing, and there's more in going on in your life now than there was at the beginning. And he commends them for that. He says, that's great. Keep pressing in. Keep doing these good deeds. Keep living out your faith publicly in the culture. Let people see who you are because of your faith in me. Do the good work that was set up for you because of your salvation. Now listen, we have to be reminded constantly that our works don't give us salvation, but there are works that come as a result of our salvation. Because Jesus has saved us from sin, there are good things we should be doing in his name, in this world, to bring his hope, his peace, his life, and his light to our society. And so Jesus says, the works that you're doing have improved. They've grown over time. And so he's thanking them and telling them they're taking steps in the right direction. That's a good thing. And for us as a church, that's a good reminder for us too. To say, hey, listen, we're never where we hope to be. We can always grow, regardless of how many thousands of shoeboxes have come through our door or how many outreaches we've done or how many cookies we're going to deliver this month to employees and businesses uh, at the bottom of our hill down here to show the love of Jesus to them and reach out to them. Regardless of what we've done in the past, regardless of how many worship services we've had, our good deeds, our things that we're doing to honor God, to honor Christ, has never reached the place where we just go, we're good, we're done now. Because you keep growing, keep working those things out, keep gaining ground in your deeds and your acts of service in my name. We're never where we want to be. We get excited about the things that God is doing here, but we always look at those things and go, and what's next? What's next for us? What else? Where can we grow in our faith? Where can we grow in trusting Jesus to carry us to the next place so that we can follow him even more fully? But even with the good things Jesus says to this church, there's still cause for concern that's here. And so Jesus writes again, verse 20, he's got some things to say to the church that's trying to bring the practices of culture into the church. And here's what he says in verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. 
By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Unless they repent of their ways, I'll strike her children dead. Then all of the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Wow. You don't get a much stronger message than that. He looks at this and goes, hey, there's a problem here. There's a woman in your church that's misleading my people. And if she doesn't stop and I've given her time to stop and to repent and she's not done it. So I'm going to put her on a bed of suffering and I'm going to put everyone who's following after her in some pretty bad situations. And not only that, I'll kill her children. We go, whoa, hang on just a second there. So let me explain. When he says he's going to kill her children, he doesn't mean her literal biological offspring. He's talking about those who follow her. He says, listen, everyone who buys into this teaching of Jezebel, they need to know that they're in trouble. Because if you follow after her ways instead of following after my ways, there's going to be consequence for that. The woman's name also is probably not Jezebel. This is an Old Testament reference, and the church would have understood this. When you go back to 1 Kings chapter 16 through 18, you see the reign of King Ahab. Ahab met and married a woman named Jezebel who came from a foreign tribe, a foreign land. And when she came into the kingdom of Israel, she brought her worship of the idol Baal with her. And she started to influence the, the people of Israel negatively by introducing the worship of the Baals. If you remember the story of Elijah going up on the mountain to do a battle against the prophets of Baal, where he called down fire from heaven on his altar, the queen at that period of time was Jezebel and the king was Ahab. And this battle that's going on for the heart of the nation Elijah leads the people back to an understanding of the one true God. And so now as Jesus writes to his church, he goes, hey, that same spirit of that woman Jezebel from the Old Testament who brought idol worship into my nation, this woman who's claiming to be a prophet is bringing idol worship and sexual immorality into my church. And I've got a big problem with that. And so he calls her out in the middle of that. And he says, unless she repents, there's going to be a problem. And unless those who follow her repent, they're going to be killed. The, the literal translation there, Jesus tells the church that he's going to put her on a bed of suffering and those who commit adultery with her will suffer intensely. It's literally translated, they'll experience great tribulation. And he says, these people who are going to experience great tribulation because of their identity with sexual immorality, with idol worship, unless they repent of their ways, they're going to be in major trouble. And now, we hear this and we go, okay, sexual immorality and idol worship, that sounds vaguely familiar. Like, I think we talked about that last week. And if I'm not too far off, I think we talked about it the week before that too. Like, why do we keep coming back around to this idea of idol worship and sexual immorality? We've already been in this series for four or five weeks now and we're four chapters or one, two chapters in, four churches in. Why couldn't we have just combined these things and gone, okay, so these three churches had idol worship and sexual immorality. Let's combine them and talk about that. Why didn't we just abbreviate this whole thing, deal with those issues in one church setting and then move on? Well, here's why. Because Jesus was gracious enough to deal with each individual church itself. And he was kind enough to say, I'm going to give a, a time for repentance, but if there's not repentance, there's going to be judgment. And even though each church, and it should tell us something that from even the first century and before that, that sexual immorality has been a problem in the church, that we're not new to that in our culture. And yet it still has to be addressed and has to be dealt with. That idol worship in the church is not something new to our culture. 
that it's still something that has to be addressed, something that has to be dealt with. The things that we put above God, whether it's money or our families or fame or politics or whatever it is that you make an idol in your life that goes ahead of God, before God, that takes priority over him, even if you might say out loud it doesn't, in your heart you know it does, those things have to be addressed and dealt with. So we take time to deal with this for this reason. If you would ask, why would we not just all do it in one setting, take three churches at one time, deal with sexual morality and idolatry, and then move on, I would ask this question. How many of us have heard three messages now on dealing with sexual immorality and dealing with idolatry, and we've still not been willing to put ourselves at the feet of Jesus and repent of those things that we're dealing with in our life? We're coming back to this again, and we're coming back to it again, and we're coming back to it again. Because we hear the message over and over and yet we don't take the steps necessary to put to death what Jesus says doesn't belong in our lives. Paul writes in Colossians, it says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your sexual or to your immoral nature, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, lust, evil desires, greed. He says, you put them to death. And yet we can come here week after week after week and hear messages and go, oh, that's for somebody else. I can still look at porn. I can still engage in these sexually immoral things. I can still lust after that person at work. I can still watch these movies. I can still read these books. I can still sit at the throne of politics and worship it. I can still sit at the throne of money and power and worship them. And we can hear these messages over and over again and not do anything about it. And I'm preaching the same message seemingly for the third time to bring it to our attention, to bring it to the forefront of going, Jesus is telling us that if we don't repent, he's given you a period of time. And if we don't repent the same way that this church had been unwilling to repent, the same way that Jezebel had been unwilling to repent, then he's going to step in and he's going to deal with sin. And you don't want him to do that. He's already freed us from sin by his gracious gift of salvation on the cross. Why make him come in and punish sin that you allow to linger when he wants you just to repent of it and move on and live in victorious life? And so Jesus calls out these things and for us, we need to be ready and willing to repent of the things that the Holy Spirit brings to our attention. The Holy Spirit will be saying to you this morning, there's that sin that nobody else knows of. You've done a great job of wearing the mask, of putting on the, the outfit of, of purity, the outfit of holiness, the outfit of God's glory. And yet, the eyes of Jesus blazing like fire look through all of that stuff that we put on that says we're good, that says we're right, and he says, I see the hidden sin. And so there's this issue that we're dealing with of Jezebel in the church and this spirit of sexual immorality and idolatry that's been brought into the church. But I want to look at it also from a different angle for just a minute. Jezebel with her false teaching and practices of sexual morality is a problem, but there's a hidden problem for the faithful Christians of the church. Did you see it when we read the passage? It's kind of hidden here, but I want us to look at it again. In verse 20, he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. And so Jesus writes to the church and goes, Look, the prophet is a problem. This woman who says she's a prophet, she's leading people astray, that's a problem. But here's a hidden issue. You're tolerating it. 
you're letting it go on in the church. You see this little subculture within your church that's formed and established, that's practicing sexual immorality, that's worshiping idols, that's saying they've got this secret wisdom from Satan, that they've got this deep wisdom that the rest of the church doesn't have access to, and you're just turning a blind eye to it. Why are you allowing those things to go on in the church? And Jesus calls out those who are faithful Christians, who are living for him and going, you're not just allowing it to happen, you're turning a blind eye to it. In the Greek text, one of the ways that you could translate that is that you're forgiving her actions. So you're not just letting this happen, you're forgiving her for allowing it to take place and then allowing it to perpetuate itself. So he says to the church, to the Christians who are faithful to him, because you've got to be aware of the things that are going on in your church, and you've got to be willing to take a stand when you see sinfulness, when you see people going a wrong direction, when you see that there's immorality that's there, when you see there's idol worship that's there. We've got to be willing as a church family who loves one another to come alongside of each other and not just turn a blind eye to that sinfulness and let it go on and let it take root in our church, but to deal with it. And Jesus says, listen, if you don't, I will. And so he talks to these Christians about not getting entangled in the sinful practices of Jezebel. And so he says in verse 24, he talks to the faithful Christians and he says, Now to the rest of you who are in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I'll not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. And so Jesus writes to these Christians and he goes, you've you've turned a blind eye for a little while. I'm calling you to deal with that. You're not dealing with it, so I'm going to. But if you don't, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold on. I'm not going to impose anything else on you. I'm not going to put some new teaching on you. I'm not going to call you to something different. I just want you to hold on to what you have. Hold on. And so Jesus might say, I want you to hold on to the truth of the gospel Hold on to the word of God. Hold on to your faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Hold on to fighting for what's right based on Scripture. Hold on. Now, this church, if we looked at the map a few minutes ago, it's about 40 miles east of Pergamum. It's probably the only church in the city. As we think about these churches, we, we usually think about churches in cities like this and go, oh yeah, it's like Kingsport. There's 800 of them. There's churches on every corner. They're just all over the place. If you don't like this church, just go to a different church. That wouldn't have been the case in Thyatira. There was probably only one church. And so there's no option for them to go, okay, we're looking at this. We see sinful things going on over here. We don't like what's going on over here. So we're just going to bail. We're jump ship. We're going to go find a church that is healthy and that's not doing those things. And we're just going to go away. And Jesus says, you don't have that option. You're in this church. This is your church. This is the church in the city. You hold on. Don't give up on this church. Hold on. Don't give up on those people who are practicing sinful things right now. Hold on. Call them back. Disciple them towards spiritual maturity. Reach out to them. Hold on. And I want to say something to us because I know what our culture is like and I've been in this position before and I don't want to call attention to something that you've done in your past, but I do want to challenge you to think about what you might do in your future. When things get hard in the church, instead of just looking and going, oh, well, we don't like that music. We don't like that teaching style. We don't like that small group thing. We, we don't really like what's going on. We see some difficult things there. We see some bad teaching. We see some immoral practices going on. Let's just go find another church. We have that option, don't we? And maybe you've been in that place before where you've just gone, oh, let's just, this is hard, let's go find a different one. And I'm not condemning you for doing that in your past, but here's what I want to call us to moving forward as a church. For Grace Fellowship, if you belong here, if you feel like you're part of us, if you've signed our church covenant and you've bought in to what Jesus is doing here, when things get difficult, because they will, 
as great as things may be right now in your mind about this church and we think things are going swimmingly, we're really excited about what God's doing here. But when things get difficult and a difficult season comes up or you find out something that you don't like that's going on, a practice that's immoral, a practice that's wrong, that's not biblical, something that's happening, instead of just going, well, fine, I knew that every church was, had a problem, we'll just go find a better one. Hold on. I just want to encourage you to stay in the fight. Here. Take a look at the things that don't fit. And instead of jumping ship, talk with our leadership. Let us know what you see. Where are the issues that you have? What are the problems that we're facing? Where is there sin that is underlying in the church that we don't know about that needs to be addressed? And let's walk together through those things. Let's hold on to what Jesus is doing here. And let's try to work out with one another what it looks like to be the body of Christ who works through problems, who deals with difficult situations, and who follows after the heart of Jesus to make a church that looks like what he wants. Hold on. Go to those people who are living in sinful practices, and instead of just condemning them and turning your back on them and walking away and going somewhere else, disciple them. Help them walk towards spiritual maturity. Show them what's wrong. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to become a legalistic, judgmental church where we're always looking around and going, what's wrong in your life? What about you? You got anything going on in your life? Uh, let me see. What's, I point something out in your life. That's not what I'm talking about. But when there are major issues that are going on in the church, instead of just saying, hey, man, the heck with that. I don't want to deal with that stuff. Let's go find a better church. What if? What if we just held on? And what if we engaged with one another and pointed people to Jesus? And helped each other walk toward him so that we can find relational reconciliation and so that we can live out our faith in him the way he calls us to. So with that being said, I want to go back to verse 26 and look again at how Jesus commends the church. This is the second, uh, excuse me, this is the longest letter that Jesus writes to one of the seven churches. And in doing so, it includes the second longest condemnation of a church, but it also includes the longest blessing at the end. Jesus is really good to balance those kinds of things. Hey, I've got a big problem what's going on here. Condemnation, 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 condemnation. But I want to come back and I want to encourage you at the end. So here's blessing. Here's how I want us to look at this to start closing up. Verse 26, to the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I'll give authority over the nations that one will rule over them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has, eye, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so he says, hey, those who are victorious, those are the ones who persevere in their faith and do God's will to the end of their life. That's what he's talking about in every church so far. To those who are victorious, persevere in your faith. Follow Jesus to the end. Stay true to him. Don't give up. Hold on. He goes, when you're victorious, when you do those things, I'll give authority over the nations in my eternal kingdom. In other words, Jesus will reign forever and he will invite us to rule with him and share responsibility with him in his kingdom. Is that amazing? Jesus goes, when I establish my eternal kingdom, you have a role to play in that. Listen, we're not just going to be sitting on clouds strumming harps for eternity. Some of you, that's your perception of heaven. And you're like, I'm not sure I want to go there. That's not what it's going to look like at all. Jesus is going to rule and reign as a God, as a king over a kingdom, over the nations. And he goes, for those who are faithful, 
who are victorious, I'm going to give you a place to reign with me. You're going to have a part in ruling side by side with me in my eternal kingdom. We get to share in that joy with Jesus. He invites us to that. But not only that, he says, for those who hold on, I'll also give that one the morning star. Go, what's the morning star? More than likely, what he's talking about is himself. At the end of the book in Revelation, he's called the bright and morning star. And so Jesus says to those who are victorious, to those who hold on, who persevere to their faith, I'll give me. What could be better than that? The morning star in the sky is the brightest star, and it's the last one you can see even as the sun is rising in the morning. You can still see the morning star, and Jesus goes, for the ones who hold on, I'll be the bright star in your life. I'll be the constant. I'll be the most powerful thing. I'll give you myself. Because you've persevered through all of the trouble of life, I'll give you me. The greatest gift ever. As we celebrate Christmas, we think about the gift that God gave to us. His son, born in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling cloths, laid in a manger. God said, I see all of the struggle of the world. And here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you me. Because only Jesus can fix the mess. Only Jesus is worth pursuing. So whatever you're going after that's less than Jesus, it's not worth it. Jesus is worth it. Come to Jesus. Repent of sin in your life and follow Jesus. He says, I'll give you a place to rule and reign with me and I'll give you access to me for eternity. There's nothing better than that. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you were challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.45 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.